It's really good to be back here with you all. <clears throat> Once again, let me ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Proverbs in chapter 9. Um, <clears throat> I woke up with a bad cold, and so I may r- lose my voice, or I may run into a coughing fit, I don't know, we'll figure that out if it happens. Um, you do something maybe a little out of the ordinary, and that is rather than kind of preach a specific text, I'm going to be a little bit topical and work through some of the things the Bible has to say about wisdom. Um, but before I, before I get into that, let me just first of all um, say how thankful I am for the chance to come up here and see you all once again. And, and uh, it's been a couple of years and uh, so I just want to thank you for your, your uh, love, prayers, and encouragement uh, as, we, as, a, as my family walked our little Alice into the valley of the shadow of death. And that was uh, the most miserable thing that we as a family have ever had to go through. And, uh, but we're so thankful for so much encouragement along the way in your, your love and kindness. So thank you. There are distinct advantages to being a part of the body of Christ, and some of those advantages you really don't get to experience until you find yourself in really lousy places. Uh, For instance, the writer to Hebrews talks about people who at great personal risk and expense visit their imprisoned brothers and sisters in Christ, and naturally you'd rather never be thrown in prison, especially in ancient Roman prison, but if you were, uh, you'd, you'd actually get to be on the receiving end of some tremendous generosity, and that's uh, pretty special. So, so thank you. We're going to launch from the very familiar words of Proverbs 9 and verse 6 this morning, or sorry, 9 and verse 10, and they read as follows, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. My reasons for picking this text and wanting to work through this text and the subject of wisdom in particular stem from a couple of places. The first is that it's increasingly apparent to me that either A, I'm getting old and crotchety and just think that everything new is stupid, which is very possible, or, or maybe, B, uh, as a nation, we are increasingly giving ourselves over to a reprobate mind, which manifests itself through foolishness and really foolish thinking. And if the problem was all out there in the world, that would be one thing. But what is in the world inevitably and invariably manages to creep into the church and We'd, rather, we'd actually be foolish not to be alert to that fact. For instance, I remember as a, uh, I, don't know, I was probably nine years old uh, on, on vacation and we were driving through Amish country and uh, I remember looking out into the field and seeing a brand new John Deere on steel wheels and, and no matter how hard you try to keep the world out, it manages to crawl its way in one way or another. And again, this might be just because I'm getting old and cranky, but I am tremendously concerned that our young people learn to think carefully, 
to think well, because if, if your kids and mine just sort of drift along with whatever cultural winds are blowing, they're, they're doomed. Um, frankly, they're doomed like every generation before that floats along with the breeze, but I think we're in a rapidly darkening age. And when I think of providence, I think of you all, I, I think of young people, and so this is really strong on my soul this morning. I have two goals for, for this message, and they're hopelessly intertwined uh, and basically the same thing, and you already are doing them, so, so you can leave and say, well, I'm already doing, so I don't have to pay any attention, and I can leave saying, they're doing what I said, so we'll all feel good about this. So, so here's my two goals. One, I want to persuade you to pursue wisdom because wisdom is valuable and necessary. And second, I want to persuade you to fear God because it will guide you in the darkness and make you safe. So that's where we're headed. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, Thank you for the privilege of being here with these, your people, and enjoying your goodness together with us. Pray for Ken and Nikki and the kids as they're out getting some, some rest. May their time be, be wonderfully sweet and refreshing. And, uh, and so be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin as, we, uh, as I try to encourage you to pursue wisdom by defining it. It's actually kind of a hard thing to do because wisdom is, is a big, vast word. Uh, Satan tempted Eve to disobey God by saying the fruit of the tree would make her wise. And that's actually the kind of wisdom that we, that we wouldn't want. Paul warns us about the folly of the wisdom of the world. That's the kind of wisdom we should avoid. I think the best definition for wisdom, uh, the one that helps me the most, is that wisdom is a tool that helps us have a better life. A tool that helps us have a better life. Some people have defined the wise person as, as the one who is skilled at life, and, and that's good too. I want to be skilled at life. God has made you and I incredibly complex beings and put us in an incredibly detailed and complex world. And the more that, that we can understand about ourselves and the world we live in, uh, the better chance we have to enjoy our life in it. So, so much of the book of Proverbs, this, this concentrated collection of wisdom, is given to really, really practical, down-to-earth, tangible insights into ourselves, our world, and how we interact with our world to provide a better present and a better future. Uh, I know from experience how hard it is to get out of bed some mornings and how utterly enjoyable it is to just lie there, especially when it's cloudy and cool outside. That's, that's just wonderful. And really, a life of rest and ease is great. What more could we want? But Proverbs reminds me that staying in bed too long means I'm going to run out of food and starve to death, and that's kind of a bad life. If you live on this green earth under normal circumstances and you starve to death, you're kind of bad at life, and, uh, and you've been foolish and hurt yourself. To me, though, this is, the, this is kind of the complexity. When you think of what a good life, a pleasurable life would look like, to me, this is what it looks like. Sleeping in, 
and taking it easy and only doing whatever seems fun and not having to work really, really hard in the hot sun or under a great deal of stress or to be apart from my family, driven by uh, imminent hunger and the uh, letters from the mortgage company. But if you live the life you want, that life of luxury and ease, the chances are you find yourself in a lot of pain and misery. If, on the other hand, you work really hard and, and all but destroy your body in the process, well, you might just accumulate enough to relax a little and enjoy some downtime. So what's our answer? Get out of bed. Go to work. It's wise. It gives you a better life. So part of wisdom is, is considering what I do now, how what I do now affects my future. It, it takes into account the world that we live in, the goals that we have for life, our present position, and, and helps us determine the best course forward. So, so you want to be wise. And let me give you two reasons that you want to be wise. The first is that wisdom is valuable. Let me go back to the idea that wisdom is a tool to help you get a better life because there's another very common tool that we use for a better life and that tool is money. If you think about the money that you have in your wallet or your purse, uh, you, you'll, if you just think about it for a moment, you'll, you'll realize that it's really just paper with ink on it. And I'm not going to go into a diatribe about fiscal policy and the, the gold standard, but let's just assume, uh, if, if that's where you want to go, just assume that you could turn the dollars in your wallet and the digits in your bank account into gold. And then what do you have? Well, you have some fancy colored, heavy, soft metal, and you can't eat it, and it's not comfortable to sleep on, and you can't burn it when you get cold, and you can sit on it all day and it won't transport you anywhere. But money is a tool, right? And that tool buys other tools like tractors or hammers or an education. It buys convenience. It buys cell phones and refrigerators. It, it buys milk and eggs, and it can buy uh, pleasure airplane tickets and Corvettes and beachfront property. If you have enough money, you can avoid a lot of really bad things in life, like hunger. You can avoid being too cold in the winter or too hot in the summer. Uh, you could even avoid going to work if you had a lot of it. So gold or money is very, very valuable, which means a lot of people are trying to get as much of it as they can. And, and in some ways, that's okay. It keeps the economy going uh, because you up here in Cross Lake are really glad when, when a man has made enough money to bring his family on vacation up here and, and he spends a lot of money and, and his money makes your business grow and that gives you nicer lives and he's happy with his vacation and you're happy with his money and it's all good. The, the point is that money is really, really valuable. And gold has been the, the universal standard of money for a long, long time, at least in more civilized societies. So, I mean, you go back to, to Abraham when he's wandering about, and his wealth is measured largely by his flocks and the sheep. But by the time you get to King David, uh, his wealth is measured by his gold. And, and today our wealth is measured by, by dollars and monetary value. That's why there's a universal desire among pretty much every human being to win the lottery. 
Because if I just had enough money, life would be really good because I'd have a really powerful tool that I could use to build a really pleasant life for myself. And we've all, we've all had that dream and we've all spent the, the $80 million and there's no sense pretending that we haven't or that we're better than that. Of course, your grandma always said money can't buy happiness, but kind of that's what a poor grandma would say, right? I mean, what, what else would she say? Uh, it's because she didn't have it. There is, of course, a happiness that money can't buy, but there is a happiness that it can. And one of the challenges that, that poor people face is learning to live without the kind of happiness that money can buy, like luxury and, and ease and fancy vacations and big boats and nice houses. Uh, and, and so poor people have to learn to live with contentment with the kind of happiness that money can't buy, like love and loyalty, and those are, of course, very valuable. But if you're willing to hear it, there's a better tool for a good life than money, and that tool is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 16 says this, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And Solomon isn't saying that gold is bad. Gold is good most of the time, and Solomon's own temple had a lot of gold in it. Golden calves are bad, but golden angels over the mercy seat are really good. So it's a little complicated. But because gold is a tool for a good life, we, we try hard to get it. But sometimes we try to get it to our detriment. You remember the old fable of King Midas who could uh, turn anything he touched into gold and that made him very, very happy until one day he gave his daughter a hug and turned her into a statue of gold. It's kind of like how a chainsaw can either make a lumberjack wealthy or cut off his leg, right? It's, it's a tool uh, that is powerful but potentially really dangerous and harmful. On the whole, though, gold is, is, is a good tool for making a good life. There's no biblical virtue in intentionally pursuing a life of poverty. God does give us all the things that He gives us to enjoy, and we should enjoy them. But there is a better, more powerful, more valuable tool to get a good life. And there's no downside to this tool. And that tool is wisdom. You want a better life. All of us want a better life. I think the reason that so many celebrities uh, struggle with depression and suicide is, is because they've achieved everything. There is nothing outside their reach. They can't see. They get to the pinnacle and they can't see anything else that would satisfy that continuous desire to have a better life. They've got everything the world offers, and they want more, but there's nothing else for them to get, and that's actually kind of depressing. And the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's report to that end. But in Proverbs 16, 16, Solomon says it's better to chase after wisdom than gold, because you can be rich and still make a mess of your life. So Jesus tells a story about a man, not, not really unlike Midas, 
this man's crops were all bumper crops and his sheds were so full he had to build more just to handle all his wealth. And he thought to himself, now I can just take it easy and enjoy life. And God said to him, you, sir, are a fool. You got all this stuff, but you're going to die tonight. And then who gets all the stuff? Not you. You know, it's foolish not to think about the future. And, and all of us are facing a future on the other side of our grave in one of two places, and neither of those two places give a fig about U.S. dollars. So Jesus says that a fool is, quote, uh, a fool is one who, quote, lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, so work hard, make money, feed your family, that's wise. But it's wise to resist the temptation to be consumed by the pursuit of money. It is wise to pursue wisdom. Here's an interesting way that Solomon puts it in Proverbs 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Isn't that cool? It's like, you want to be wise? It's the most valuable thing in the world. How do you start? By getting it. Uh, and that is wise. Wisdom begins by being wise enough to know how valuable wisdom is. It is the very definition of a fool to neglect the pursuit of wisdom. So be wise and get wisdom. You all know the very familiar account of God's offering to Solomon, a blank check. Ask anything you want, it's yours. I just can't even imagine the pressure. Well, I can, right? We've all had the, the, uh, you know, the Aladdin fantasy. Rub the lamp and the genie comes out and you get anything you want. We've all had that. But that's a decision for you, right? Because not only are you choosing the one thing that you want, in a sense, you are not choosing everything else. So you choose what is of the greatest value, what can give you the best life. And Solomon chose wisdom, and God gave it to him. And with that, he gave him all the other stuff that we might have been tempted to choose. But you, you kind of have to be wise to ask for wisdom. So pursue wisdom, it's valuable. Secondly, wisdom is necessary. It's kind of closely linked. But wisdom is necessary for a good life. You and I are bombarded with uh, a myriad of decisions every single day from the moment we get up to the moment we put our head back on the pillow at night. And some of those decisions are mundane and kind of meaningless. Uh, some of them are significant and life-altering, and sometimes you just don't know which one is which. Uh, wisdom helps us navigate all the complexities of life so that the decisions that we make help us, not hinder us, from reaching our goals. Wisdom helps us, for instance, in a very practical sense, wisdom helps us to dress right for job interviews. Wisdom helps us to know how to interact with members of the opposite sex. That takes some wisdom. Wisdom helps us conduct ourselves properly when we discipline our children. Wisdom helps us decide which activities we're going to do today and which ones we, we won't, which ones we'll turn aside. And because we live in a fallen world, it's critically important that we pursue wisdom. Living without wisdom is kind of like driving down the road with your eyes closed. It's like you don't have all the information and the know-how to get where you're going without crashing and burning. I was thinking about that as I was coming up here. Um, 
Have you ever just driven down the road and you're driving down these curvy roads and you think, you know what, I haven't thought for five miles about turning my steering wheel. How am I still in my lane? It's like you just kind of do it automatically, right? Um, but imagine trying to work your way around the roads here with your eyes closed. Um, you know, I, I drove about 60 all the way up here. I could have driven 80 and been fine. But if you got your eyes closed, <laughs> you're going five and trying to figure out which ditch you're hitting. And wisdom is, is having good vision to see the road of life. A wise person understands the way the world works and acts accordingly. A fool doesn't get it or doesn't care or he tries to live in rebellion against God's created order. You know that God built this world with certain unchangeable laws, physical laws, moral laws, economic laws, social laws. And if you live in constant violation of those laws, you'll make a mess of your life invariably. Uh, if now, you will in eternity. Um, you know, if, if you uh, don't believe in the law of gravity and so you go jumping off a cliff, that's pretty foolish and will harm you. And, and if you jump into activity that violates God's moral law, that is foolish and it will lead you to harm. If, if that uh, activity is kidnapping or slander or adultery, if you violate economic laws, that leads to the misery of economic collapse. Just, just ask the uh, oil-rich but starving Venezuelans this morning. If you violate economic laws, bad things happen. Corruption in places of power are going to be the undoing of otherwise impregnable nations. You think about ancient Israel uh, under David and under Solomon. Impregnable, but corruption ruined them. Babylon, uh, Rome, uh, the Soviet Union more recently. Just powerful nation. Eaten alive by, by corruption from within. Wisdom understands these laws that God has put into the world. It respects them and it obeys them. And so in a, in a really dangerous world, we do live in a dangerous world, foolishness is a sure path to a bad life and a bad death. And, and we don't want to die if we can help it. So get wisdom. It's valuable, it's necessary. But here's the heart of the thing, and that is to fear God. I hope you want to be wise. It would be a wise thing to want to be wise. And our chosen text for this morning in Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or you could turn it around backwards and say to not fear the Lord is the root of being a fool. So let me just take a, minute, a couple of minutes to walk through what it means to fear the Lord since that is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, the general answer that I have heard more often than not is that when, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it has to do with respect or reverence or, or awe. And that's fine as far as that goes. That's a very positive definition. But, but fear is not exactly the same as respect. And I think the biblical authors had words for respect and reverence and awe. And when it was appropriate, they could use them, but they didn't. Um, sometimes when I think of respect, I think of that old uh, country song that I used to listened to when I was a teenager. Uh, it was Tracy Bird singing, I tip my hat to the keeper of the stars. I was like, that's respect, right? You tip your hat to the keeper of the stars. Um, give the man some props. But that's not fear, right? That's not fear. Fear is closer to being afraid. Here's how Jesus talks about fear, Luke 12, 4 and 5. 
Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And by the way, aren't we afraid of things that will kill our body? Oh, you better believe we are. But after that, have nothing more that they can do. So don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of them. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So if you're standing in front of someone who might kill you, the fear you would experience would be more than respect or reverence or awe. It would be dread. It would be sheer terror. And Jesus says that is nothing compared to how you should feel before Almighty God because He can throw your body and soul into hell. That's who you should fear. You know, to be human is to be limited. To be limited means that there's powers greater than you and I. And to be sinners, sinful human beings in a sinful world, means that there's hostile and malicious forces at work inside of us and outside of us. And these forces threaten us with great harm. And the idea of being harmed causes us to feel afraid. And you will be afraid. And I will be afraid. In fact, it's foolish not to be afraid. Fear can protect us from doing really stupid things. Uh, one of the reasons that I don't get drunk is fear of what I might do under the influence of alcohol. Now, not all fear is proper. Certain fears are considered mental disorders. Fear of water fear of clowns and spiders and crowds, you, you don't want those. You don't want to be afraid of things that, that can't hurt you. It's right to be afraid of water in the sense that uh, if you decide one day you're going to uh, strike out swimming from New York and, and land in Eng England, the fear of drowning might help you decide against being stupid. But if you're afraid of a glass of water, that's, that's not good. So good and proper fear can protect, but if you misplace fear, it can be crippling and do a lot of harm. Uh, this is kind of an interesting discussion, and I'm not, I'll probably get into trouble, but that's okay, because I'm leaving soon. So, <laughs> One of the reasons that people vaccinate their kids is fear of them getting the polio or the measles, and one of the reasons people don't vaccinate their kids is a fear of a negative consequence from the vaccine. So... Uh, so the great Jonathan Edwards, trying to show how safe the smallpox vaccine was, took it and died from it, and maybe it would have been better for him to have risked smallpox. But then we're kind of glad that smallpox really isn't a problem now because the vaccine eventually got fixed and took care of it. So we live in this complicated territory with complicated and competing fears. And so, so what we do in a, in a world where there's a lot of things to be afraid of is we kind of rank order our fears based on our understanding, limited, our limited understanding of the threats. Some people, for instance, are really afraid to fly, but maybe they're more afraid of missing out on a great Hawaiian vacation. So they suck it up and get into the plane. When I was starting construction, I was a little afraid of walking on walls, and that's understandable. You could fall and get hurt, and I wasn't that steady on my feet, but I was more afraid of being a bad carpenter, I was more afraid of getting fired, and I was more afraid of other people on the job saying, what's the matter, chicken, can't you walk, right? Those fears were greater than the ones walking on the... So what did I do? <laughs> I got up, and I, and I walked those things. 
When we talk about the fear of God, we're talking about going through life, including deliberately in our thinking the reality of God, the holiness of God, the expectations of God, all the things we know about God. We include all of those in the... uh, the mental calculations of the 10,000 decisions that we make every day. Why? Because God is real. God is holy. God is the creator. God is the lawgiver. He's the redeemer. God's approval by grace through faith is what we live for. And if we don't include those things into our daily thinking, we will behave foolishly. That's why David says in Psalm 14, he opens Psalm 14 by saying, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. A person can be ridiculously intelligent, but if he fails to acknowledge God, he he will fail to fear God, and that means that he will fear other things, and fearing those other things can make him a fool. For example, one of the struggles that the Israelites had and something they picked up from their pagan culture uh, was sacrificing babies to the god Moloch. You, you've heard of that. Uh, the uh, Amorites had this god named Moloch who was depicted as a great big hollow statue uh, with a little door in the back and they would open the door in the back and they would build a fire in that thing and they would get that baby glowing red hot and, and, and then they would take little babies and, and set them on those glowing red hot hands. Right? And, and that's disgusting. And, and, uh, and they would have a band close by to, to play, to drown out the, the cries. Uh, and and that's, that's gross. It's like, why would you do that? And I have no doubt. I, I've known all kinds of mothers. I have no doubt that even those mothers generally hated to have their children placed on those red-hot hands and burn their little babies to death. So why would they do it? Well, because greater than the fear of losing their one child, they feared the chaos and the misery that this Moloch would bring into their lives if they didn't somehow appease him, if they didn't pacify him. And it's, it's the same today right? Men and and women are still offering up their their children to the gods of the age. The the god of prosperity demands that the economic burden of children be ameliorated or erased. The gods of personal freedom demand that the social burden of children be erased. The god of sexual pleasure demands that the fruit of sexuality be sacrificed. There, there's, a, there's a tangible fear in the air, isn't there? A fear of poverty, a fear of the hard, dedicated labor of raising children, the fear of missing out on the pleasures of life to take care of a family. And those fears drive decision-making, and the decisions are often tragically foolish and downright immoral. But how much better to fear God than Moloch, right? I mean, for one, you get to keep your kids. And for another, God's commands are given to you and to me for our flourishing, for our joy. God doesn't give us commands just 
to keep his anger abated. He gives us those commands because they're good for us. They make our life better. God is, of course, angry when we, when we make a mess of our life by rebellion against his law. And God's, God's punishments are all designed to press us back into compliance with God's law for our good. You know, God doesn't get his jollies out of making us miserable, unlike the pagan gods. God's designs are for our good. So that's the positive message that you and I get to bring to a, a world that is in bondage to fear, but it's the wrong kind of fear. It's misplaced. So, so here's the bottom line. Uh, what we fear most, we will obey, no matter what the demands are. Whatever, whatever you're the most afraid of, uh, you, will, you will follow it. You will obey it. The tricky part, the tricky part is keeping all our fears in the right proportion and in the right order so that we're afraid of the right things and not the wrong ones and we get them all in the right order. And wisdom does that. Wisdom does that. That's how these two connect. So, so if you want to begin the journey to becoming wise, if you want to begin the journey to having a good life in this world and especially in the one to come, you begin with the fear of God. It's the foundational element. So here's, here's two reasons to fear God. Um, how are we doing? We're okay. I hope. It's a little warm. I know. I get it. I'm sweating too. Two reasons to fear God. One, the fear of God guides us through the darkness. Again, we live in a complex world. We can't even fully grasp the meaning and significance of our past, much less manage and calculate all the variables of the present and predict the future. You and, you and I know what it's like to be faced with paralyzing decisions. I sat in my office recently with a woman who was pondering whether or not to leave her husband and frankly, there were really good reasons for her to stay and really good reasons that she should leave. And there would be really hard stuff if she stayed and really hard stuff if she left. And who's to say which would give her a better life? There's this allegory that shows up often in Scripture. It has to do with a person walking through a really dark and dangerous forest there's a path, and as long as you stay on the path, you'll be okay. But, but if you wander off the path, you might, like Jesus said, fall off a cliff and be ruined. Or you might get lost and never reach your goal. Or Paul tweaked the metaphor a little bit, and, and he said you might be shipwrecked. You might be the victim of some wild beast. But there is a path through life, and the path is, is safe. The problem is that the path is dark, and you can't always see it. So Psalm 119 that we, we read earlier in verse 105 describes the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us where the path is, gives us direction. You know Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 7. Let, re, let me remind you of it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't lean on your own understanding. Why not? Well, because your understanding is very limited. It's very skewed. And in the myriad of steps that you have to take every day, you're bound to wander off the path and get lost. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Why not? Because... 
Because in this messy world, with your sinful nature, with my sinful nature, the, the best wisdom that we have is ultimately foolishness. Instead, trust in the Lord, which I, I think means a lot more than praying a prayer and listening to the fir- first voice that pops into your head, right? It's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It has to mean reliance on the Word of God. Solomon says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. In, in every decision, factor in the reality and the person of God. Never leave God out of your mental calculations as you're weighing out your decisions, Fear the Lord, he says, and turn away from evil. So fearing the Lord is true wisdom, and that will steer you away from evil, which which in the Old Testament, evil can be moral evil, or it can just mean trouble. Uh, It can save you a lot of trouble. You know, a lot of life's troubles are entirely avoidable. For instance, if you fear the Lord and stay faithful to your spouse, you won't get your lights punched out by your husband or have to pay child support. That's Proverbs 5. It's, it's there. Don't co-sign a loan for a stranger and fall into financial ruin. Proverbs eleven fifteen. Get out of bed, get off to work, and avoid starving. Proverbs 6, 10, and 11. Be really careful how you conduct yourself before uh, intimidating important people who might want to manipulate you. Proverbs 23, verse 1. All right? there, there's, there's some troubles in life you can avoid by being wise. We know the dangers present in life. Interestingly enough, we don't always know how to avoid the dangers. We don't always know which dangers we should avoid, which dangers we need to embrace and try to overcome. Uh, some interesting studies coming out um, on the, the, uh, what, what Dr. Jonathan Haidt calls uh, safetyism. Like, like it's, it's good to be safe, so it's probably really good to be uh, entirely safe from every threat. And guess what? That's actually wrong. If you wrap your kids in bubble wrap, that's bad. That's, they got to be banged around a little bit um, because that's how God designed them, them to work. And so, so wisdom is, is trying to figure out um, uh, which challenges we should face, right? Um, it, it's understandable for, for a, a one-year-old to be afraid of a rat, but your boys are 13, 14 years old, you don't want them to be jumping on the table screaming, right? You, you want them to be able to face their fears at some point and, and to, to tackle some challenges. I remember trying to sort some of this stuff out during Alice's final months as I was thinking about treatments, um, vacations, thinking about what I knew about Alice's kind of cancer, what the things I knew about Alice, what the what uh, medical options were available, what the probable outcome of each option was for her, um, what the side effects were. They, they, they were really complicated things. And trying to find that way forward wasn't always easy. So, so what do you do? Well, you, you fear the Lord, trust His Word, Try to take the realities of Alice's situation, take the realities of God's ability to, to heal her if you wanted to her, the reality that God does not always heal, or we could even say that God does not often heal. Try to understand the glories of eternity, take into account the responsibility I have as a dad uh, to God and to Alice to make that little life as good as I could and just try to 
move forward. It's complicated and it's hard. And so this is really practical stuff. So the fear of God gives us direction and, and it makes us safe. It makes us safe. Here's three dangers that the fear of the Lord helps us to avoid. Number one, the fear of God helps you to avoid God's wrath. It's really wise to avoid God's wrath. I mean, this is, I know, this is like a duh, right? Like duh. But it's really wise to avoid God's wrath. In fact, you're better off dying than bringing God's wrath on your own head. That's exactly what Jesus was saying in Luke 12, right? Don't fear the one who can kill your body. Kill, fear the one who can kill your body and throw your soul into hell. Wisdom sees into the future. And, and one of the, one of the th- things that wisdom sees in the future is judgment day. So, Romans 2.5. Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Like, it's really bad to end your life with a huge pile of God's wrath waiting for you. But if you don't fear God now, you really won't care about the future. And we'll just walk through life piling up wrath, laughing about it all the way, because we just don't think it's real. We are afraid of the future, but we're afraid of the future as we see it. And God's word gives us clarity into the future that we all have to face. It's really, really wise to beg God for mercy and seek his forgiveness now and avoid his wrath later. It's it's only a fool who, like Peter warns us, scoffs, laughs, mocks the notion of a coming day of reckoning and does not prepare for it. Wisdom says it's better to be afraid of that day now and make peace with God now than to ignore it and face it in full force later. So the fear of God will make you safe from God's wrath. It'll make you safe from sin's allure. Sin's allure. I I, I have a saying that is sort of born out of uh, experience. And it generally holds true, and that is this. Sin makes stupid. Sin makes stupid. We do the most idiotic and bizarre things when we're under the influence of sin. I I think of Jacob. I mean, this has got to be one of the dumbest things that you could possibly ever do. I mean, it was a bad twist of providence that, that made that made Jacob married to Leah, not, not the girl that he wanted. But how dumb to not only have two wives, but to marry sisters. I mean, just the practical implications of trying to live with two sisters um, and be married to them both. So, so he, he ends up with, I mean, what kind of life? Strife. Uh, Rachel's got her tent. Leah's got her tent. Not a happy family, not a fulfilling marriage, and uh, so that's his life. Why? Because sin makes really stupid. David has more wives and concubines than fingers on his hands, and he sleeps with one of his top soldiers' wives, and, and that leads him to murdering one of his best warriors and forever brings chaos into his household. That's really dumb, really dumb. Business owners sabotage their businesses by greed, Power-hungry rulers, corrupt legislators, enact laws that are unjust or wicked and harm their people and destroy the nation, and thus they lose the power that they long for. Was it Caligula that made his horse a senator? That's pretty dumb. That's pretty dumb. Of course, Rome is going to fall if the senators are horses. 
The fear of God gives us a healthy fear of sin, even when sin looks really appealing. Because Caligula, Caligula made his horse a senator because he apparently thought it was a really good idea, just like Jacob thought it was a really good idea to marry sisters. Keeping away from sin is wise. And thirdly, the fear of God keeps us safe from the world's error. The world's error. The Bible calls the enemy of our souls the prince of the power of the air. We are warned in scriptures to be prepared to withstand the winds of doctrine. The idea is that just by living in this world, we are breathing destructive forces with every breath. They're all around us. Every time you turn on your television or your radio or read a paper or a book or every time you look at Facebook or talk to your friends, you're breathing uh, tainted air. And, and most of the time, you can't even see it. I remember, so I, I grew up uh, in a rather strict fundamentalist home. And uh, so I got liberated, you know, and I got married and, and I could watch anything I wanted on TV. And, and how fun was that? Because I hadn't seen any of that stuff that all my friends got to watch. But I remember the feeling when I suddenly realized that I'd watched so many television comedy shows that fornication didn't really seem like such a bad thing anymore. It's like, it really is. It will mess up life. Don't do that. But, but you breathe in the air. Your children and mine are growing up breathing air that says sexual deviancy from God's created order is nothing to be afraid of. In fact, you should celebrate it. I didn't have to be taught that. Um, I grew up in the world, I mean, the world that I grew up, that great moral pillar Bill Clinton uh, thought that homosexuality would be regulated by what he called a yuck factor. That's crazy. Um, and, and I understand that, and so do some of you. But, but in all likelihood, your kids won't get that, and, and neither will mine. It's not because we haven't taught them. It's that every breath they breathe of this world's air says sexual deviancy is normal and should be celebrated. And the fear of God helps you to fight against that, the air of the world. Our Savior was despised and rejected of men, but He took it because he knew that there was a crown waiting for him. I think in a, in a real sense, we could say that Jesus feared the disapproval of the Father more than the disapproval of the entire world. Isn't that amazing? Jesus goes to the cross, his disciples bail on him, the governmental powers are against him, the religious powers are against him, and even the crowds are against him. I mean, there's like nobody on Jesus' side except his mom. And he went for it. Why? Fear God. Not that. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. Oswald Chambers said, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you'll fear everything else. Let me close with this. In Revelation 14, there's this mighty angel flying through the air. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. And as he's flying through the air, from his, he's, he's talking in a loud voice, and from his, from his lips comes what the Holy Spirit calls an eternal gospel. Here is that eternal gospel. Fear God 
and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's the eternal gospel. Fear God, give him glory. I'm so grateful for, for you. I'm so grateful for Providence Community Church. I'm so grateful for what God has done and is doing and is going to do among you. I love your, your youth and your energy and your strength. Um, Paul wrote about feeling anxious for the churches that he ministered to, and I, and I know what that feels like. I'm anxious for my church. I'm anxious for all the churches I minister in. I'm anxious for you because this is a dangerous, messy, complicated world, and I, and I fear, here's, here's one of my fears, I fear that, that we might be in danger of being overcome for lack of wisdom and for lack of the fear of God. So it's my charge to you, my charge to me, and may God help us keep it. Get wisdom. It's the most valuable thing you can possess. And here is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. It'll guide you in the darkness. It'll protect your souls from eternal danger. Cling to Christ, who Paul calls so wonderfully and eloquently the wisdom of God. Remain unmoved from the word of God. Remember what Jesus said? You, you, you probably know this from being a little kid. Jesus said, the one who hears his words and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Um, the storm is coming, and only a fool would build a beach house actually on the beach with nothing underneath it because um, it's going to come down. So the storms are going to come, and, and we are to be wise and build something that lasts on the Word of God. Get wisdom, fear God, be so glad you did. Give you a good life, good eternity. Father, thank you for these dear ones. And the privilege that is ours to sing together, to pray together, to speak together, to listen together, to open your word and take in so many of your benefits. You have promised that if anyone lacks wisdom, can ask you and you give it. And so uh, hear our prayers and answer them in your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.